I'd like to invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans 12, 1 and 2 is where we find ourselves in our biblical exposition of Holy Scripture. As we did last Lord's Day, and as I want to do today and for the next couple of weeks at least, is to camp out on that phrase in Romans 12, 2, do not be conformed to this world. As you know, my habit is to take the phrase-by-phrase perspective of each of these verses of Scripture and expound them to you. And as I reflect in my own spiritual life on Romans 12, 1 and 2 and what it means to be living as a sacrifice unto God, I find those two phrases, one negative and one positive, do not be conformed to this world, that's the negative, and the positive, Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewal of your mind to be fascinating for my own sanctification. I suppose all of us could ask the question, And I assume most of us have. What does it mean not to be conformed to this world, practically speaking? And secondly, what does it mean to be transformed by the renewing of your mind? What does that really mean? How does that work itself out in my daily existence as a Christian? And we have been spending some time and yet will spend more time on the fleshing out of what those two phrases really mean. And of course, I'm going beyond Romans 12, 2, to look sweepingly at other passages of Scripture to help fill out that idea of what it means not to be conformed to this world and to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. And I introduced last Lord's Day that concept of not being conformed to the world and what it might mean. And I suggested that what it might mean, as we have often heard this trilateral dilemma of the Christian life, where we battle the world, the flesh, and the devil. And I started last time to talk to all of us, my own heart especially, about what it means not to be conformed to the world's way of thinking especially as it interacts with my own indwelling sin. That is what some call the flesh. I prefer to call it indwelling sin or remaining sin. That's, to me, a clearer concept in my own thinking because, of course, the word flesh will always be with me when I'm in this world. I'll always be fleshy, hopefully not fleshly, but fleshy. I'm tied to this world. And the reason I'm tied to this world, even as a regenerated believer in Jesus Christ, is because I will always battle, always battle remaining sin. Sin that is within me. And we talked a good deal about that last time. And I gave you what I hoped would be some helpful categories on how to deal with remaining sin. Now, honestly... I only dealt with it in one message. 
And I really wish I could turn this into an 87-part series. But I can't. You know I can't. Well, you know I could, but I shouldn't. I shouldn't do that because we need to move on to continue to discover all of the riches of Romans chapter 12 and 13 and all the way through the end of this great letter of Paul. And so I must hasten on. And so just giving you the barest surface of what it means to battle remaining sin, I want to move on this morning to Satanology, the doctrine of Satan. And I can only give you probably this message and next Lord's Day, the doctrine of Satanology, especially as it relates to this idea of resisting a conformity to the image of this world. And so I want to talk this morning about Satan and how Satan deceives us. Last time, I talked about our own remaining sin, the sin that lies within us, in one sense, the sin that may or may not have anything to do with Satan himself. This morning and next Lord's Day, I want to talk about how Satan does, in fact, tempt us to sin. In other words, fanning the flame of what is already there in our remaining sinfulness. Our sin that lies within us, its, its flames are fanned when we don't understand Satan as we ought to. As I mentioned to you last time from 2 Corinthians, Paul says to those Corinthians something that I'm not sure is always true of us as present-day evangelicals. He says to them, and we are not ignorant of his schemes. I suggest in large measure, we as present-day evangelicals are indeed ignorant of His schemes. And I want to do my part to ensure that you and I, as we ultimately stand before the Lord, are not ignorant of His schemes. That we know what He's about, we know what He's doing, and we know how to combat His wicked scheming, His cunning devices. Temptation especially as it comes to us from Satan, is an undeniable fact of the Christian life. And I should say to all of us something that I'm sure the vast majority of us would not quibble with at all, and that is that Satan and his demons are real, and that one of his primary attacks on believers is to tempt them to fall into sin. Satan, his world, his worldview... And even our own remaining sin, as we talked about it last time, are all real foes to be reckoned with. And not only does Satan himself tempt believers to sin, the Bible says in the book of Revelation that he tempts believers and that he also accuses believers before the throne of God day and night. Satan hates Christian people. He hates us with an ever-living passion. And He will stop at nothing to attack us and to distract us as believers from our appointed duties. Satan would never be satisfied until he has believers so debilitated because of our own sinful choices and because of falling to his cunning devices. And if he could, he would stop at nothing 
to destroy those who love the Lord Jesus Christ. And because I love you and because I know you love the Lord Jesus Christ, I want to warn you. I want to arm you about Satan and his devices. We must not. We cannot be ignorant of his schemes. Turn with me to Ephesians and I'll put some shoe leather to that idea that Paul gives the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, to this very idea of the reality of Satan and what he's all about when he tries to tempt us. And then I'll get real practical as I did last Lord's Day about exactly how he does this. This is sort of an introduction on Satanology. Here's what the Bible tells us about who Satan is and what he's going to do, very briefly stated. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. We won't talk about the armor of the Lord. We should, the whole armor of God. But we'll get to that whenever we go through Ephesians. Ephesians 6, 11, it says, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. What does that tell me? That the devil is all about scheming. Very obviously. He schemes against us so that we would not stand in a fortified position. He even says, verse 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. In other words, this is not just some, some kind of human warfare, but he says against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is real, folks. Real. This is a real battle. It's not merely against fleshly weapons, human weapons, flesh and blood, but it's against these categories. And that's what Paul is really referring to here. Categories like the rulers, the angelic rulers, that is the demon rulers, the demon authorities, the demon cosmic powers who pervade over this present darkness that is our world against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is another verse in our understanding of Satanology. 2 Timothy chapter 2. Paul is telling Timothy to flee youthful passions and to pursue righteousness and faith and love and peace and all of those things that the Lord would want us to do from a pure heart, according to verse 22. And he says, verse 23, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know, he says, they breed quarrels. And then he says, verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them, these opponents, repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth and that they may escape from the snare of the devil. The opponents of Christianity are those who are presently, according to this verse, under the snare of the devil. He's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the God of this age. And he has people duped. He has them ensnared. And he even goes on to say that he has, Satan does, according to the opponents of Christianity, captured them to do his will. Now that's serious business. And he says you ought to treat your opponents with fairness, with loving kindness, with patience, 
that God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. Why? Because they're ensnared and they would otherwise, if you speak truth to them, be able to escape. That word escape means literally to awaken yourself. Paul alluding to someone who would be asleep or drunk. They need to be awakened to the truth. And he says they're held captive, signifying that the person's been captured alive. It's a warlike term, a military term used of soldiers who were captured alive in battle or used of birds when they were ensnared alive by a fowler's net. That's what Satan's all about doing. And if he can do that with unbelievers, he tries to do that with believers. And though unsuccessful in the ultimate sense, he is at times very effective in ensnaring us in temptations and sins and issues for which we would be rendered powerless if he could and if we would. This is Satanology. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Most of these, again, are very familiar passages to you, but putting them all together in a systematic presentation, we can find out a little bit more about Satan so that we might not be ignorant of his schemes. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Peter says, be sober-minded. Be watchful. Now, this is what we need to know, folks. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. If Satan could, he would devour you. He would tempt you to sin and make you powerless, to not make you potent for the living of the Christian life. He says in verse 9, resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Rely on God's grace, the God of all grace, verse 10. Satan is real. He's a roaring lion. He seeks to devour people. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5. He says, for this reason, talking to the Thessalonians, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. Paul was so concerned about their standing firm in the faith. Why? He says, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. Satan's the great tempter. Tempter with the capital T. And he tempts believers to sin and make us powerless to live the Christian life. And if he could, he would. 1 John chapter 5, verse 19, an amazing verse. 1 John 5, 19, we know that we are from God. That's whose domain we live in. And yet he says, the Apostle John, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It's an amazing theological statement that Satan is the power behind the ensnaring of the whole world into his lair. Now with that as a very brief look at just a few verses, we can understand so very clearly from the Word of God that Satan is real, that Satan is here, and we should not be, according to 2 Corinthians 2.11, ignorant of his schemes. 
We have to know what they are. And I've heard some Christians even say things like, well, look, I don't have to know anything about Satan. I don't know, have, to, have to know anything about that evil. And they may even uh, quote those verses that say, be innocent to that which is evil. So if I'm to be innocent to that which is evil, then why should I know anything about Satan at all? Well, how do you reconcile those things? How do you reconcile the concept that says, be innocent to that which is evil, and yet we are not ignorant of Satan's schemes? Well, obviously, the concept of not uh, being wise to that which is evil, but to be innocent from it, is the concept of not being experientially involved in it. And the idea of knowing the schemes of Satan is the opportunity to know who your enemy is. To count the cost, to know what he's doing, to know where he lives and where he abides and what he does and how he tempts. We have to be careful. We have to be aware. How can we use the armor of God to extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one if we don't even know where those darts are coming from? Are they coming from the, from the front? Are they coming from the back? Are they coming from the side? Where are they coming from? What are they? How can I know that this temptation is from Satan versus how do I know this is a test from God? It's a very interesting and provocative question because that word tempt, by the way, parasmos in the Greek, is either, depending on its concept, uh, context, translated temptation if it's coming from Satan or test if it's coming from God. James chapter 1, other places. God doesn't tempt anyone. That is, He doesn't seduce anybody to evil. He doesn't try to elicit someone to evil purposes. But God does test the believer. Same word, parasmos. So how do we know? Well, you've got to know God's work in your life. And you need to know Satan's work in your life. You need to know what he's doing. And I want to share that with you this morning. I want to give you six satanic temptations that are designed by Him to render you powerless. And I want to give you God's precious remedies. I want to give you three this morning and three next time. Here's temptation number one. You want to know Satanology? You want to know the doctrine of Satan? You want to know what he does, how he does it? Here's temptation number one. See if this is not your own experience in the Christian life. Satan will tempt you to sin by first deceiving you. Very simple. Satan will first tempt you to sin by trying to deceive you. One of Satan's primary tools is to deceive believers into thinking that sin is something other than what it truly is. Sin. We talked a little bit about that last time, didn't we? We talked about how Satan glosses or paints over sin with virtue's colors. It's the old bait and switch. And if you want to see that, turn all the way back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This will give us a sense, again, very familiar passage, but something in which ought to be etched in our minds when we are dealing with Satan's devices. I want you to see the, the interaction that he had with Eve, and I want you to see how he handles himself, the Word of God, and how he tempts Believers to sin. Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field. By the way, that's another commentary that the Bible gives us on Satanology, the doctrine of Satan, that he's more crafty than any other beast of the field. But here's the assurance that the Lord God made. 
Well, if God makes him, he's able to control him. He, the serpent, said to the woman, verse 2, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And he asks that question. Well, what did the Lord God say? Look back at chapter 2, verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And Satan comes along, I'm sure very quickly, on the heels of that, And he says to the woman, in a way that I believe begins to cast doubt on the Word of God, did God actually say, casting aspersions on the Word of God. Verse 2, and the woman said, Genesis 3, 2, to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. And notice what Satan does immediately. This is embodied, of course, in this serpent-like figure. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will surely not die. Just just a bold-faced denial of God's Word. And he says, verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, as though God is keeping something back from you. Keeping something good from you. Denunciating God's Word. Verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was this lust of the body, and that it was a delight to the eyes, that's a lust of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, that's the pride of life. That's 1 John 2, 15-17 right there. All the way back in Genesis and affirmed in 1 John 2. And what did she do? She took of its fruit and ate. Bait and switch. He glossed over. First cast doubt. Distorting. And then denunciating the very Word of God that Eve and Adam were given. And as soon as Eve did it, Adam was standing right there because it says... In God's word that she turned and she gave it to Adam and he ate. Lack of leadership. Lack of authority. Lack of withstanding the temptations of Satan. It was bait and switch. Remember I quoted for you Thomas Brooks, Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Satan knows that if he should present sin in its own nature and dress... The soul would rather fly from it than yield to it. And so he presents it to us, not in its true colors, but painted over with the name virtue that we would be more easily overcome by it. And no doubt in Eve's mind, it was desirable, the Bible says, to make one wise. Well, I want to be wise, don't I? God's holding back something from me. And Satan does this all the time, this bait and switch, this deceptive bait and switch. You say, well, what are some examples of that? Well, here's one. When you do a good work for God, then Satan will attempt to make you proud of it. So if he can't do something to deceive you immediately into sin, he'll allow you to do some kind of good work 
And when you do that good work, he'll immediately say, boy, that was a great sermon. That was really good. You know, you're really good. I remember Spurgeon went back to the back and was welcoming people and some person walked up to him and said, that was a great sermon. He said, thank you. Satan tells me that all the time. That's, that's good advice. That's a good way to talk to yourself. And that's what happens. If he can't deceive you by painting vice with virtue's colors, then you'll do a good work and then he'll say, you're really good. And then well up pride in your heart. Or how about this one? Satan will tempt or deceive you into thinking that so-called lesser sins are unimportant, unimportant and bigger sins are unavoidable. That's what happens. Oh, that's not really a big deal. Remember the category last week? It's the it's no big deal category. Oh, it's not that bad. At least I didn't murder anybody. At least I didn't steal from anybody. Yes, but what about the lust of the eyes? If Satan cannot stay you from a good work, then he'll by all means attempt to make you proud of it. And if he can't deceive you immediately into evil, he'll paint vice with virtue's colors. And he'll even show you that some so-called lesser sins are not even to be grappled with. Just, just deal with the bigger sins. And ultimately, the lesser sins will be seen as unimportant. And the bigger sins, ultimately, because you've compromised in the little ways, will be seen as unavoidable. Look, I, I said no to this, and I said no to this, and I said no to this, but I can't say no to this. Or, I've said yes to these little things because they're little sins, and then when the big one comes along, your defenses are not up. You're not ready. You're not battle ready. You're not battle ready to deal with those bigger sins. And Satan will come along and say, you're not powerful enough to stop it. It's unavoidable. But what's the answer to that? First Timothy, or excuse me, First Corinthians ten thirteen. First Corinthians ten thirteen. God is faithful. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. But with the testing, with the temptation, He'll provide a way of escape, so that you may be able to endure it. It's not an escape from the testing. That's clear from that verse. The escape is an escape from a sinful response. You see, you can never stand before God as a believer and say, Lord, I had no other choice. There was absolutely nothing else for me to do except sin. The temptation was too great. The bait and switch was too unavoidable for me. And I fell and there was nothing I could do about it. And you ought to memorize 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Coming right out of the heels, of course, of that verse that says, Take heed, lest that pride of yours cause you to fall. And you remember he's talking there in chapter 10 about the children of Israel and all of the ways that they fell in the wilderness. And he says these things have been given to us as examples so that you would not follow in their steps. And he says, No testing has overtaken you. No testing overtook them either. But such as is human. Literally, such as is human. Nobody can say, Well, I, as a human being, went through this particular test, this particular trial, and nobody else in the whole universe has ever gone through this. And because of that, it was unavoidable. I had to sin. There's nothing left to do. I was between a rock and a hard place, and there was absolutely no way out except to sin to get out of it. Now, what kind of logic is that? 
You know what kind of logic it is? Satanic logic. It's exactly what it is. It causes you to denounce God's word, to manipulate things. Here's another one. Well, since God wants people to be saved, witness while you're working instead of doing your work. Well, you know, God wants people to be saved and Satan will say, hey, you know, that guy over there, he needs to know the Lord. Tempt you not to work, but to witness. And if your boss has said clearly, I want you to work, not do that, and you get sideways with your boss, well, I'm doing great things, aren't I? Bait and switch. You could find yourself in the unemployment line. And what kind of witness is that? Here's another one. I've heard this one. Since God wants me first and foremost to be happy and fulfilled in life, I'll divorce my husband, I'll divorce my wife, since God couldn't possibly want me in this bad marriage. He wants me to be more happy than holy. Now, Satan would never tell us that straight out. He's never going to say to us, the Lord wants you happy more than He wants you holy. Because what kind of response would we have to that? No, I've got a good theology. I know that's not true. I know that I'm not going to fall to that. So what does he do? He says, you're not happy, are you? You're, You're just not really happy in this marriage. And you know, if you were outside of this marriage, you would be happier and then you would be holier. You see, if, if you didn't have that louse of a spouse, then you would be so much more fulfilled, so much happier, and then you could serve the Lord. Oh, how you could serve Him. How about, how about money? How about people saying, Oh, but if I had all the money in the world that I'd ever want, ever need, I could give so much more to the Lord. Doesn't it sound good? And then you get involved in some get-rich-quick scheme, and then you say, oh, I can now tithe more than 1.2%. The Lord is so pleased with my generosity. You see, there's always and forever examples like this that show us how Satan deceives us. Here's, Here's a remedy. Write this down. Recognize that sin, regardless of how it's presented to you, recognize that sin, regardless of how it's presented to you, is still sin. Remind yourself of that constantly. That sin, when it is presented, even if I have to work at discerning that it is indeed sin, is always sin, whether it be so-called lesser or greater. All sin is sin. Now, There are sins that have greater consequences. That is true. But all sin is sin. And Satan would want you to think that because there are certain sins that have greater consequences, that the lesser sins are either unimportant or trivial or don't really matter at all in God's great economy. And so do those little ones so that you can stay away from the bigger ones. Well, guess what? You do the little ones. You start stacking up those little ones on top of each other and you will be so out of it you'll not be able to withstand the greater ones. That's the whole point. That's his deception. That's what he does. Look at Proverbs 26. Proverbs chapter 26. We're in Proverbs chapter 16 right now in our Sunday evening studies, and we'll be at Proverbs 26 in the next millennium. Proverbs 26, verse 23. Now this, is, this is 
a great set of verses for Satan's temptations. Listen to this. Proverbs 26, 23. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel. You think of glazed donuts there? I do. Like the glaze. Those are sinful. Those rings of death. They are. Like the glaze covering an earthen vessel are fervent lips with an evil heart. That's what Satan wants. He wants somebody with their lips who have an evil heart to have this thin veneer, this glaze covering their outward life, but inside he wants to stir up all kinds of evil within us. Verse 24, whoever hates disguises himself with his lips and harbors deceit in his heart. When he speaks graciously, believe him not, for there are seven abominations in his heart. And if we could apply that to Satan, yes, he oftentimes tries to speak very graciously. But believe him not, for there are seven million abominations in his heart. Though his hatred be covered with deception, his wickedness will be exposed in the assembly. That's why you ought to be here with God's people faithfully, regularly. We've got a world out there. We've got Satan out there. We've got our own indwelling sin inside of us. And we need to be with the assembly so that the wickedness of those who cover over that wickedness with deception will be exposed. This is... This is how we respond. Verse 27, whoever digs a pit will fall into it and a stone will come back on him who starts it rolling. A lying tongue hates its victims and a flattering mouth works ruin. This is how you can fend off the disguises of Satan who disguises himself as an angel of light. And it may look like virtue and it may be covered over like that and there may be a thin glaze covering the outward, but always and forever remind yourself that Satan is real and that he's a formidable foe and that he's a cunning schemer and is this or is this not a temptation for me to avoid? And I've said to counselees throughout the years, yes, sometimes it is very difficult to discern whether or not this is a test to pass or a temptation to avoid. Therefore, be discerning. Be discerning. Watch out. Be vigilant. Romans chapter 12, here's a, another passage that can give us the kind of precious remedy against Satan's devices. Romans chapter 12, we'll be getting there shortly. Romans chapter 12, verse 9. Let love be genuine, abhor, repudiate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Look at verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Abhor sin. Hate it as though you would hate hell itself. Hate it with an utmost hatred. Abhor what is evil. Shun it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 gives us a similar word in that regard. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 15 
See that no one repays anyone evil for, for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Verse 21, test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. That word that sometimes is translated appearance of evil just means every kind of evil. It doesn't mean appearance as though it's not evil, but it may appear to be that. It's talking about abstain from every kind of evil, every manner of evil, every source of evil. You don't have to turn there, but Proverbs 5.8 says this, Keep your way far from her, the adulteress, and do not go near the door of her house. That's that classic bait and switch in the sexual area. She's, she's looking at a would-be passerby through the lattice. And she makes her bed with those coverings all nice. And she says to the passerby, my husband's gone on a journey. He's taken a bag of money with him. In other words, it's going to be a long time before he returns. Come. And you know that bait and switch is, here's Satan, here he is again. You know you've got a pretty bad marriage. You know that things aren't well at home. And if I may speak graciously, Satan says, and you know, this, this really would, would possibly help you in your own marriage. And you say, what? How would that possibly help me in my own marriage? Well, maybe, uh, maybe being a little bit more sensitive, maybe being sensitive to this person. Maybe it would allow you to be more sensitive at home. You know, you're not very sensitive. Yes, I, I know that. Well, you know, you could be really much more sensitive if you learn how to treat people with kindness and graciousness. And then you say, well, okay, well, I'll just go in and talk with her for a, for a moment. And then the slippery slope has begun. You put yourself in a condition like that. You hear what appear to be gracious words. Uh, you hear deceptive words. And you're not ready. You're not battle ready to discern the issues. And you say to yourself, well, I'll just do it for a, for a moment. Remember I told you last week, Joseph just ran out of there after having been tempted day by day. And maybe some of those temptations were coming from Potiphar's wife like this. Oh, Joseph, you're so handsome. I mean, there's really nobody as good looking as you. And you say to yourself, no, I want to run away completely from people who talk to me like that. Now, what do people want to do? You want to hang around because you want to hear a little bit more of that. You want to hear about how good-looking you are, about how successful you are, about how entrepreneurial you are, about how good you are. And you don't want to run away so quickly from that. So you just listen just a little bit more. I'm sorry, could, could you repeat that? I, I just didn't quite... Do you know that that's not what I hear at home? No, what, what I often hear at home is nagging and when are you going to take the trash out and you know, when are you going to build that deal? And when is this going to be repaired? And, or, you know, you're just not who you need to be at home. But boy, everybody gives you the kudos when you're outside. See how Satan works, deceives. Proverbs 20, verse 17. Bread obtained by falsehood is sweet. It's sweet. It's sweet to a man. But afterward, his mouth will be filled with gravel. Oh, it's the bait and switch. When the poison of asps stings a man, it first tickles him so as to make him laugh till the poison, little by little, 
gets to the heart, and then pains him more than it ever delighted him. Keep the greatest distance between yourself and sin. Recognize that sin, no matter how virtuous it may be painted, is still sin. It's a deception. Run away from it. Even if you think it might not be sin, but it might look a little bit like it, run away from it. Even if you're not totally sure, run away from it. Recognize that sin is never more seductive and destructive than when it appears most hidden. And so ask God to make it visible to you. Listen to this. Revelation 2.24, the Bible calls Satan's doings the deep things of Satan. This is a warfare that goes deep, deep into the battle. And the only way to become knowledgeable of the deep things of Satan is to both know how we are tempted and what truth we have at our disposal to counteract his schemes. Listen to Proverbs 24, verses 7 and 8. Wisdom is too high for a fool. He does not open his mouth in the gate. He who plans to do evil, men will call him a schemer. How much more of a schemer is Satan than any mere man? Satan's like this, Proverbs 26, verses 18 and 19. Like a madman who throws firebrands, arrows and death, so is the man who declares to his neighbor and says, Was I not joking? Hey, just having a little fun. It was just a little joke. Just a little aside. Come on, it's not that big a deal. Wasn't I joking? But in the midst of the joking, firebrands, like arrows, messengers of death. Maybe I'll give you one more and we'll have to close. Running out of time. Number two. Number two. Here's another strategy of Satan. Satan tempts believers to sin by trivializing and minimizing sin and its consequences. That's what Satan does. He tempts believers to sin by trivializing and minimizing sin and its consequences. Remember Saul and his offering of the sacrifice in 1 Samuel 13? That was not his place. That was not his duty. Tempted to sin in that way, no doubt. How about Uzzah in 2 Samuel, 2 Samuel 6? You know, doesn't, doesn't the Lord need our help to, to right the ark? It's going to fall. Just thought I'd help out. How about Achan and Joshua 7? Just taking a little bit of that booty. Just a little bit. A little bit of the goods. It, it, it's trivial. I've even had people, unbelievers, read these passages like Saul and Uzzah and Achan and say, what's going on there with your God? I mean, just killing a man for trying to right the ark? Trying to... Put it back so it wouldn't fall and disgrace the Lord? What did the Lord command? Don't touch it. Yeah, but what about offering these sacrifices? I mean, Saul's a king. I mean, is there any big deal between a king and a priest? According to God, there is. King goes into battle, sheds blood. He's not qualified to serve in that other role. What about Achan? I mean, he just took a little bit. 
I mean, look, when you're driving down the road and you see something you want and you know it's not right, you know it's not good, you know it's not best, but you just pull in because you just want to have a sneak peek at what's in there. You go buy the magazine rack. You just want just a little taste, just a little bit. And then when you do it, Satan comes along, plays mind games with you and says, see, that wasn't so bad. Now look, don't do too much of that. That could get you into real trouble. Just, just a little bit. That's it. That's all. And by the way, isn't God not to be trusted because you, you did it and it happened? And look, nothing, nothing occurred. Nothing happened. No consequences. Got back in your car. You walked out of the place. You went home. Nobody said anything. Nobody knows. What did we say last week? God knows. God knows. He knows what we're doing. He knows our hearts. And you compromise in those little areas, and those big areas will come up and bite you big time. And then when you're caught, there's nothing to say. Satan's strategy, no one will know. No one's around. No one cares what I do. That's a big one. That's a big one. No one really cares. I mean, look, I'm just a little old me, and I'm not really a good servant, and I'm not really popular, and there's a whole lot of, you know, self involved in those statements and you know i'm not really gifted i'm not really qualified i'm not really up front i'm just one of the little people and so i'll just go and do this because it's really not that big a deal it's it's trivial look it's, it's just we just minimize the thing remember what i said last week numbers 32 23b your sins will one day find you out Remember what I said about Jesus in Matthew 5? All sin is serious and serious sin, serious radical amputation. If your hand offend you, your eye offend you, cut it out. Pluck it out. Take heed lest you fall. Take heed. Every sin, every sin, no matter how trivial or minimal Satan tries to make it, is recorded by God and we will one day give an account. Did you know that? My sins have all been judged at the cross. You know what? That could be a satanic strategy for you to believe that and then believe there's nothing in your post-cross life that will be given as an account to God. That's a lie. That's a lie. Your actions post-cross as a Christian are very important to God. We call it your sanctification. We call it your holiness. Listen to this, Matthew 12, verses 36 and 37. And I say to you, Jesus says, that every careless word that men shall speak, they shall render account for it in the day of judgment. For by your words you shall be justified, and by your words you shall be condemned. Listen to Matthew 16, 27. The Son of Man is going to come in the glory of His Father with His angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. This is important. This is, this is what the Bible says straight up to us. Acts chapter 10, verse 42. Listen to what it has to say. 
And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God, that's Jesus, to be the judge of the living and the dead. Second Corinthians 5.10, we will all stand before the Bema seat, the judgment seat of Christ. All believers. Romans 2.16, recompense. Even in our own Romans 14, verse 10, that we'll get to shortly. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. We're all going to stand there. Verse 12, so then each of us will give an account of himself to God. You say, just for our outward actions, yes, but also for your motives. Because 1 Corinthians 4, verse 4 says this, I am not aware, Paul says, of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Then he says this, Therefore do not pronounce judgment on your brothers before the time, the time of Christ when he comes. Because what will he do? When the Lord comes, He will bring to light the things now hidden in the darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Everything will be exposed. Everything will be out in the open. Even for ministers of the Gospel, 1 Corinthians 3, be careful how you build. Every elder, every deacon, every spiritual leader... Be careful how you build. Are you building with gold and silver and precious stones? Or are you building with wood, hay, and straw? And it says the day will give evidence thereof. The day will reveal it. Ephesians chapter 6 verse 8 tells us so very clearly that we are going to give an account even in your work. This is what it says. In your work life, as a workman, as an employee, you're to render service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a slave or free man. Whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. So many others. The Lord is very concerned about this issue of sin. It's not trivial. It's not minimal. We are going to be evaluated There will be a critical analysis of our lives. Nothing's trivial. Nothing's minimal. Are some things more weighty? Yes. But nothing's trivial. Nothing's minimal. And Satan would get you to believe that. He would want you to think of temptations and sins and faults and failures. And how many times have you heard somebody say, Well, yeah, I I know that those are some weaknesses of my life. I I know that I fail in a few areas, but hey, look at this. And you whitewash the deal and you make people believe that all of the things you're excelling in are the most important things and all of the things you're failing in are really not that big a deal. But you want to be able to say, yes, I know that these are weaknesses, failures, faults, sins, attitudes, motives of the heart, and they are what I'm most attempting to deal with. Why? Because they're my greatest weaknesses. Ask yourself this question. If the Lord is sanctifying my life, if He's bringing me into holiness, do you think the Lord is presently working on my greatest strengths or my greatest weaknesses? You say, well, what trials, what tests am I going through in life? No doubt the ones in which the Lord is working on the greatest weaknesses. And every trial, every test, 
Every problem, the Lord is zeroing in on those weaknesses, those failures, those faults, those sins, those issues, those motives, because He wants a totally sanctified soul. And all those weak areas, they come to the surface. You say, why do I have the spouse that I have? So that the Lord, at least in part and maybe a major part, could show you the sins of your life. You say, so that's why when they do what they do, I do what I do. Precisely. Of course, exactly. So that when they do what they do, and then I respond the way I do, the Lord says, see there. But what do we do? We say, well then deal with him so I wouldn't do what I do. Deal with her so that wouldn't happen in my life. Guess what? If it wouldn't happen with them, it'd happen with somebody else. It would happen with your employer. It would happen with your schoolmate. It would happen because God is on a relentless quest to make sure that you and I are conformed to the image of Jesus Christ and not to the world. And He'll stop at nothing to do it. And sometimes, believe it or not, He'll even use Satan in the process. Because as much as He gives Satan opportunity to tempt you in your life, And it's not God doing it. It's Satan who tempts you. God isn't soliciting that to evil, but Satan is. But God even uses Satan in the process of the siphoning off of the sins and faults and failures of your life. As Luther said, Satan is God's devil. God's devil. He owns him. And he even uses Satan. You say, I do not understand that. Neither do I. But I know it's true. God uses Satan. God uses sinfulness in the world. God uses my own own remaining sin to produce in me holiness. And every aspect of it is not trivial or minimal. It's all important. Don't be lied to. We've got four more. Let's see if we can get through them next time. Let's pray together. Father, these are absolutely crucial principles to battle Satan, to know his strategies, to stand against his schemes. And, oh Lord, give us in practice what is positionally the case with us And that is a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Give us this victory in our practice. Allow us to defeat this cunning being called Satan. Help us, Lord. Give us strength and wisdom and might and courage. And allow us the discernment to know when is it a test from You, and when is it a temptation from Satan? Show us. Take us. Mold us and shape us not to be conformed to the world, but to be conformed to Christ. Lord, I pray that You would create in these very people who are sitting before Me the desire to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and to defeat Satan, to know his schemes and to respond rightly 
Allow us to know the Word of God. To say no to temptation. To be able to be like Jesus even when confronted with Satan himself who twists your word. To be able to know so that Satan would flee when we resist him. Lord, show us even more temptations of Satan and our precious remedies. And we will thank you. Lord, I pray for anyone here who is presently ensnared by Satan, totally captive in doing his will. Break the shackles, Lord. Bring them even this day to repentance and the knowledge of the truth. We pray and thank you for the victory that is ours in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.